Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. I'm Justin. I'm the campus pastor on the west side. Um, I started attending DR about three years ago and uh, attended here. And so um, there's always, as west is slowly becoming my home and uh, my home congregation, there's always something really refreshing about coming into this space with these people. Um, And it's Incredible to be here in this space, um, as the Sundays here are limited, and I just, you know, it's, it's easy to get a little emotional as we think about all that God has done in this space, and how many lives God has transformed in this space, and it reminds me of the kind of story in Joshua with the 12 stones. They crossed the Jordan, they say God showed up in this place, and, and they made a memorial for it, and so we're kind of doing that with the, with the building celebration dedication. We're celebrating what God has done. So I just want to encourage you again to, to come out to that event and, um, and be blessed and celebrate what God has done in this space and trust that God is going to do even immeasurably more in the new space, the new location, that he's going to, to kind of do the impossible there. And so, man, it's just, it's just good to be here and it's good to see you all this morning. Um, <laughs> and so this morning, uh, I've got a question for you. Uh, it's the same question Tony asked you all last week. Uh, just see if the numbers have changed a little bit. Is anyone reading Joshua along with us? Yeah, a couple more hands this week, a couple more hands. Awesome, awesome. So if you're reading through the text of Joshua this week, um, we are in chapters 11 through 19. Um, it's a pretty large chunk of text, chapters 11 through 19. Um, and it's a really difficult text. And I know Tony talked about this. Last week, with the sun stand still, it's kind of like kill, 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 stop, sun stand still, kill some more. And it's just, it's a very difficult text to understand. And if you like flip the page and you get to chapter 11, you're like, maybe the plot will change. Um, and it doesn't for 19 chapters. Um, it's just this, this kill, 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 and then take the land. Take the land. Take, take what the inheritance is. And so this morning... As we deal with this really kind of difficult text in this difficult place um, where um, a lot of people have kind of like refuted Christianity and says, oh, I don't believe in a God that would do that. Um, I want to kind of dive into, into that a little bit and kind of answer the question and look at the question of why, why is this conquest necessary? What is the reason for the conquest? And then I want to look at what does it mean to receive the inheritance? And finally, I want to ask, what does all this mean for us? Because... We have nine chapters here, what, and it looks like it's just all killing and dividing. What, what is God trying to say to us? How is this passage of the Bible going to get us to Jesus? And like, as we've been going through the True and Better series, we see that every passage in the Old Testament, we've been challenging us to kind of change our hermeneutics, change the way we see the text, and see how is this text teaching us about Jesus? What does this text have to teach us about Jesus? And so it might get a little dark, but know that it's going to get really bright and awesome um, at the end as we kind of pull out to the end. And so if you guys want to get to Joshua uh, chapter 11, verse 23, this is the, the section that I want to read from this morning. Eleven twenty-three from Joshua. It says, So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord directed Moses. And he gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal divisions. And the land had a rest from war. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, we just thank you for this day. We just thank you 
uh, for this space that we can come together and worship you freely. And God, we just thank you for providing a new space and a new location, a new community with new mission that we can bring your gospel and good news to it, God. God, I just pray that you prepare the hearts in that community. I pray that you prepare our hearts to get excited about being in a new community, welcoming strangers into our homes, God. God, I just pray that you be with us this morning as we go through this difficult text, but that um, our hearts and minds would be open to understanding that we would hold back any emotional response that we want to, to give at first, but that we would look at the text and see how God is being good and just and true through all of this. So God, we give this morning to you, and God, I just pray that you, you work in us a new, a new heart, that you set us free from chains that bind us. In your name we pray. Amen. And so as we go through the book of Joshua, and as I've been teaching it at West, there's three major themes that I see through the book of Joshua. And so uh, since we've had different teachers you know, here at East, I just, I just want to give you the three major themes that I've seen through the entire book. And the first theme is that God moves mightily on behalf of his people. God is constantly moving mightily on behalf of the Israelites throughout the entire book. We see God just move through the Jordan. We see him move through Jericho. We see him move through the conquest. So God is moving mightily on behalf of his people. And that's a truth. That's a truth that we can take as a people of inheritance, that God is going to move mightily on behalf of his people. The second thing that I see from the text and through the whole book is this idea that we are no longer defined by our past. That there is no definition to the Israelites to the past. They're the descendants of parents that couldn't get it done in the desert. And they had to live 40 years in the desert under the punishment of their parents. They had to serve the sentence of the punishment of their parents for 40 years in the desert before they could go and take what was rightfully theirs that God had had faithfully promised to them. And so they're a generation of people that couldn't get it done. And they're the generation of that. And they're here. And they're here now. And they don't see themselves as a failure. They don't see themselves as wanderers. But they see themselves as a people of God being led by God. And God making things that seem impossible, possible for them. And so, as a people of God and as a people of inheritance, we are no longer defined by our past. And we should no longer begin to look at other people around us and define them by their past either. If we're going to walk around not defined by our past, we should not walk around defining other people by their past as well. And then finally, we are a people of inheritance. When we look at this text and as we see the people move forward into the place of inheritance, we see them become more and more um, a people of God and more and more focused that we, we have this identity in our inheritance. And so those are, those are the themes, and we're going to look at those themes um, as we go through this text this morning. And so the next question is, is what, what is the reason for this conquest? Why all of this killing, and what does all this killing and this inheritance in Canaan mean for us? I think it's an important question to ask an important question to answer. And so, and I think the beginning of this answer begins in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. It should be on the screen. And it says this, God is talking to Abraham. And as God talks to Abraham, he says this, he says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there. And they will be afflicted. And for 400 years. And I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve And afterward, they shall come out with great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
So why is God bringing judgment on the Canaanites and the Amorites in this place of land? Why is God leading the people to this place of promise? Well, one, God is making good of his promise. He promised Abraham, your people are going to be enslaved for 400 years. They're going to be under corrupt rule. And he's talking about Egypt. And we've seen how God moves them out of the promised land, frees them, and brings them into the desert, and then brings them further into the promised land. The second thing is that, if you caught that last line there, it says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So you see that where Abraham is currently at geographically, there are cities and people around him that are very wicked. But they're not wicked enough that God finds it necessary to step in and do anything about it yet. And so he decides that I'm going to give these people 400 years. I'm going to be patient with these people. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to give these people 400 years to come to know me, to either choose to continue in wickedness or to repent. And in 400 years, the people do not change. And, and if anything, they increase in their wickedness. And this country of Canaan becomes a country that is full of deep-seated wickedness. Wickedness that is filled with sexual practices and debaucheries that would make anyone blush. Things that you couldn't imagine doing sexually, they would do on the daily norm. Day in day out, men, women, children, it didn't matter. You see, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah was a Canaanite city, and it just so happened that the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah came sooner because God saw fit that it needed to be dealt with. But even he was even willing to be, uh, to be patient enough to save it if there were only ten righteous people. And instead he delivers Lot and his, and his daughters, and he destroys the city because of the wickedness that was there. And that wickedness comes and begins to fill a nation. They, were, they created practices towards their gods in which that they would incinerate children on the hands of their god. Thousands and thousands of children they would sacrifice in the hands of their gods. You see, when people read this text and they just look at it and they're like, man, this god is just this, this creating genocide. He's going after this this innocent people, he's, he's performing ethnic cleansing. It's kind of not the full story. It's kind of if you were to look and live and be in this generation, anyone, I guarantee you, you place anyone that lives in America today in the society, would look around and say, if there is a God, he must intervene. He must show up. We need a God that can come and stand in the gap and fight for the innocent. Ezekiel says these people were greedy, that they were overfed, that they turned a blind eye to the needy, and that they were helpless, and that they did whatever they wanted and whatever they saw that was right in their own eyes. You see, we would question if God had any sense of justice at all if he let it continue. And the people did not fear God. They did not They did not fear him. They did not respect him. They didn't care. They did whatever was right in their own eyes, and they were ripe for justice and judgment to come. And so Israelite comes, and Israel brings justice, God's justice, to make it right, to come and fight for those that have no voice, to come and make a case 
for the innocent. And you see that when God comes through the story of Joshua, when, when the people of Israel come, they get to Jericho, right? They get to Jericho and they send the spies in and Rahab's there, the prostitute in Jericho. And she hears of the story of God and the way that God has delivered Israel, the way that God has been strong for them. And she's like, you know what? I know these people are wicked. I know that my people are wicked and that they've fallen under judgment. But I know that this, this is the God of heaven and earth. This is the true God that's coming. And I want, to, I want to be a part of that. And so she repents. She gives up her identity and she comes and she joins. And she's saved. Last week, we went into the story of how God made the sun stand still. I know that Tony focused on different points than the points that I focused on at West, but the reason that got us to the place of the sun standing still is that there's this people called the Gibeonites. And they were mighty warriors. The text says that they were mighty warriors. And if there was anyone that thought that they could defeat Israel, it should have been the Gibeonites. It should have been them. They should have been the ones that should have been able to take up arms and fight Israel and win because they thought that they were that strong. I mean, the, the surrounding regions feared these guys. But they hear of the might of the Lord and the might of God and the glory of God that goes before them, and they're like, surely this is the God of heaven and earth, and we need to find a way to get in. And so they politically trick Israel into a treaty. And by tricking them into a treaty, they're essentially saying, we believe that you are serving the true God, and we want to live. And so what they do is they forfeit their identity as mighty warriors, and they become servants to Israel. They become wood choppers and water bearers for the temple of the Lord. They had an identity of mighty warriors, and they humbled themselves before God, before the people of Israel, and God spared them. God even fought on their behalf. That is why the sun stands still, because God was fighting not only on behalf of Israel, but on behalf of Gibeon. Gibeon had become adopted into the inheritance. And so we see that these people are not just as innocent as people might make you think. And, that you, and they're not without choice like people might make you think. But you see, this story is really about how God comes and fights against these other gods. In this culture, in this day and age, when you, when you went to war, your God went to war with you. And I can only imagine that the reason why the Canaanites never humbled themselves, never submitted themselves to the one true God in their own pride is that they believed that their God was too strong, that they could actually defeat him. But as they're being laid to waste, you've got to imagine that there's some fear, that there's some trembling. But how do you convince a people that have sacrificed thousands and thousands and thousands of their children that their God isn't strong enough? That their sacrifice has been made in vain. And so I can see this kind of political sphere where you just push forward all the more. More sacrifice, more wickedness, more evil, we need to make our God stronger. It's kind of like we see this happen with the prophets of Baal, where like Elijah comes and he pours water on the altar, and the people of Baal are praying to like call down fire from heaven, and, and he's like, I don't think your God hears you. And so they try harder, and he's like, I don't know if he hears you, and they're trying harder. And then he just prays, and God lights the, the wet wood on fire. You can see this happening, that, that these people that come in, that God comes into Canaan, to bring justice. And you see that this is not necessarily a story of Israel being more strong, more superior than Canaan. It's not even really a story of God having favorites toward Israel, but it's rather a story of justice and of grace. 
And what's interesting is that when Israel comes in and they take the land and they get comfortable, they don't end up getting rid of all the Canaanite influences. They begin to look over the fence. They begin to see the wicked and evil practices of their neighbors. They begin to intermarry. They begin to bring those practices back into their culture. And guess what happens? God sends prophets. He sends the prophet Ezekiel and he tells them, you know Sodom and Gomorrah? They're nothing compared to the wickedness in you. And he brings, guess who? The Canaanites back to bring judgment upon the people of Israel. So you see, this story is a story of God's justice. God's incredible justice on his people. And the question is, is what does this story have to do with us? Like, we get that the Canaanites are wicked. We get that the Canaanites did detestable things. We get that, like, they, they, they might have been deserving of what they had coming for them. God waited 400 years. But what does this mean for us? And I think it gets really plain and really difficult. And we're going to have a Sunday where we kind of have to, like, look in the mirror a little bit and just be honest with ourselves. And I think Romans 8 reflects this really well. I mean, Romans 3 reflects this really well. And it says this. It says to us, it says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned to his side. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. Their venom is asap under the lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. They have, and in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And when you think about it, what was the sin of Canaan? What was the ultimate sin of Canaan? And the ultimate sin was that they had no fear or acknowledgement of God. They didn't acknowledge God. They never gave God the proper place in their life. And here the text says, even in Romans, in the New Testament, that we are people that do not have the fear of God before our own eyes. And I think if we're honest, we all have skeletons in our closets, right? Like, we all have past regrets. We all have deep regrets. We all have places that, like, we've done evil in ways that we never imagined. I think of times when I was a child and the hope and the futures that I had for myself. And then I think of, like, the mistakes and the evils that I committed along the way. And if I was a child, the things that I've committed, I never would have thought of. I never would have believed that if you were to tell my 10-year-old self that, Justin, by the time you were 25, you would have committed these things. That you would have committed these things. And the reality is that we all deserve justice. We are all like the Canaanites. We all deserve the justice and the wrath of God upon us. We all deserve the justice. And the thing is, is that like, we love justice, right? Like We are people that love justice as long as the justice doesn't have to do with us. Like, we want justice for Israel. We want justice for Pakistan. We want justice for people that are innocently shot. We want, people, we want justice for people that don't have food. But as soon as we're driving on the highway and the lights come on behind us and we pull over, the last thing we want is justice. If we can start, officer, officer um, you know, why were you speeding? Um, well, you see... You see, I really wasn't going that fast. And like, you're going to really pull me over for going five over? Like, really? Um, You know, we get really defensive. And we're like, we don't want justice in that moment. Think about it. Anyone that has committed an atrocious crime, what's the first thing they do? 
They begin plea bargaining. They, they begin trying to find what is the least amount of justice possible that I can serve. What is the least amount? We love justice. We love justice when it's for the Canaanites. We love justice when it's for the murderers. We hate justice when it comes to us. We hate it. But the reality is is that we deserve the same judgment. We deserve the same justice. And that justice is right. And that justice is good. Even if the story were to end right there, God would be good and just in the things that he did. And that is really hard to wrap your mind around. Because there's nothing good in us. We don't fear God. We don't seek the Lord. That's not who we naturally are. But thankfully, thank God, the story doesn't end there. But the reality is that it needs to get this dark. And it needs to get this heavy. Because if we don't talk about God's justice in a way that's uncomfortable, I don't know how we talk about a way that we can talk about grace in a way that's worth celebrating. If we don't talk about justice in a way that's uncomfortable to ourselves, I don't know how we can celebrate the grace of Christ. It has to get so dark for the grace of God and the mercy of God and the cross to be so bright. We need a God of justice. We need a God that's going to make the wrong right. We need a God that's going to do the, take the things that are wrong in my life and injustices that I've done, that I've brought upon people. I need a God that's going to make that right. And it's got to be uncomfortable. And it's got to be dark. We need a God that says, don't repay evil for evil because vengeance is mine. We need a God who fights on behalf of the innocent. We need a God that we don't diminish his justice because that way we don't have to diminish his mercy and his grace. Amen? And there's a place. There's a place where this justice of God comes and intersects with the mercy and grace of God. And that place is the very cross of Jesus Christ. It's the place where the incredible, full force, full blunt, darkness, justice of God comes and intersects the full life, love, grace, happiness, joy of Jesus Christ. And it's at that moment on the cross. The last song that we just sang was absolutely beautiful. It talked about the darkness that was there on the cross as Jesus was laid to rest, as the full judgment, as the full justice of God came down upon his son. If you want to get mad about God killing some innocent people in the land called Canaan, get mad about Jesus on a cross, the truly innocent, the truly undeserving, the truly unblemished lamb, coming in and willingly standing in our stead and taking the full justice of God so that we might live in the benefit of the mercy and the grace and the life that is to come, that is inheritance. The cross is where the story changes. Up until this point, we are just the people of Canaan. But at the cross, we become the people of Israel and we become a people of inheritance. We become a people that is able to take a land. The cross is essential. The cross is a place that transforms us from a people of judgment to a people of inheritance. And you see, the reality is that Israel did nothing. They did nothing to deserve the inheritance of God. 
But they were able to receive it because of their faith. And we, abs- and we too have absolutely nothing that we can go to God and be like, God, I deserve your grace. I deserve your mercy. We have nothing to offer. But at the cross, Jesus says, let me stand in the way and take the full blow of justice and extended you the full life and mercy of grace. That we may walk in new life. You see, I think the thing that holds us back from the gospel the most isn't necessarily that we don't believe. I don't know as if it's that like we don't believe in the gospel. I think the thing that makes us most hesitant towards the gospel is that we believe that it exists, we believe that Jesus came and died. I think we have a really hard time wrapping our mind around the fact that we just have to receive it. That we have to believe it and receive it. I think the hardest thing is that we think that we have to go out and take it, that we have to go out and earn it, that we have to go out and prove it to God that we are good enough, that we have to go out and get our lives together. You see, we live in a society that's growing more and more um, in this place of that we're afraid to be a burden to one another. We're afraid to be a burden to our neighbors. We're afraid to be a burden to our family. We're in a place where, like, we just don't want to burden anyone. We just don't want to get in the way of anyone. And this cultural mentality that we have of not being a burden to somebody is ultimately rooted in this place that we don't want to feel like we have to owe them. And I think you guys know what I'm talking about because, like, I don't know about you. I don't know if you've been home, but you've, like, ran out of, like, pepper. And you're like, man, like, it'd be really great if we had some pepper right now. And so, you know, maybe you and your, your spouse you have a conversation like, well, we should go to the neighbors and ask our neighbors if, if they have pepper. Because they probably do. And they probably lend it for this recipe. But then the other spouse is like, no, 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 no. Like, we don't want to inconvenience them. We don't want to burden them. They might be in the middle of their supper. Like, why don't we just go to the store and buy our own pepper? And so you, like, make your trip to Woodman's just to buy pepper, go through the self-express line. Like, it's awful when all you could have done is, like, go to your neighbor and, like, can I have some pepper? But we're so afraid of the burden and that we might have to owe somebody some pepper someday. And I'm using this because it's ridiculous and because it's absurd. But I think you get the point. And even with our own family members, even with our own family members, even in our own church, we're afraid of laying this burden of ourselves upon anyone. And if I can't go to my neighbor and ask them for some pepper, then how am I able to ask for Jesus Christ to bear the burden of the justice that I owe, that I am guilty to? And just think, the more and more we we feel like that we're a burden, that we're a burden, that we're a burden, the more, guess what happens? We begin to isolate. We begin to live and sink deeper and deeper into our 400, 1,200, 2,400 square foot box that we call our home. And when we isolate ourselves and we don't allow anyone in, we just become cut off. And there's no way that we can receive the gospel if we're in a place that we're afraid that we are going to be a burden. The gospel runs exactly counter to that logic. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 24 through 25, it says, He himself bore our sins on his cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
For by his wounds you are healed, and you are continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Jesus in Matthew, he says, Come to me, and I will make your burden light. He's inviting you. He on the cross is saying, You know that burden? You know that justice? You know that debt that you pay? Take me. I will bear it. I will bear it for you. I will willingly take it. The question is, are we going to humble ourselves and allow God to take our burden for us? Are we going to allow him to take it? You see, if we're going to live in the land of inheritance and take the inheritance, we have to get used to the idea that our burden is graciously and wonderfully carried by our Savior. And when he says he's going to make the burden light, it's not that the burden just disappears. It's just that he starts pulling more. And he starts pulling and fighting on our behalf. He becomes strong where we were weak. Now before Tim left, a couple weeks before Tim left, Tim looked at me and he's like, you know, Justin, he's like, do you have any hobbies? You got anything? I was like, no, not a whole lot. He's like, you know, I really enjoy lifting weights. Do you want to come lift some weights with me? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to lift some weights. He's like, I think you could be a great power lifter. I think you could lift some, some weights with me. He's like, we got similar build. He's like, come lift weights with me. And so we go and we lift some weights. And as I'm learning how to lift weights with Tim, Tim's trained at like power lifting gyms. So like the dude, the dude knows how to lift a ton of weight. I mean, I don't know if you ever, like the dude's thick. And so anyways, we're, we're at the gym and, and I'm bench pressing. I'm bench pressing, you know, Tim, like the weight's super heavy. He's like, it's light, it's light. Just keep telling yourself it's light. And I'm like, ah. Oh. And we get to, we're doing five sets of five and we're getting to the last set. And I'm lifting that weight with all of my might. And guess what? My arms give out. And guess what? That bar comes to rest. It's on my chest. And Tim's looking at me. What's going to happen next? Am I going to recover? Am I going to take it? The bar gets heavier and heavier. I was once strong enough to lift this weight, but man, it's, it's feeling really heavy now. It's beginning to crush my chest, getting hard to breathe. Tim's like, just stay win, man. I'm like, all right, lift it up. Boom. Rips it off my chest, racks it on there. My hand stayed on. It was like, poof. And if you want to talk about a burden being lifted... Like that, if you want to talk about a burden that was crushing my life, that was taking the air out of me, that had become so difficult to bear, and that burden being bore onto someone else, I can't think of a better picture than when Tim reached down and ripped that weight up and racked it. And as my hands just went for a ride, that burden became very light, very fast because I was able to submit myself, humble myself, and trust not in my own strength, but in the strength of Tim. I trusted Tim in this moment of weightlifting that he was strong enough to lift that weight off if things got dicey. And we went into it. You know, if things get rough, I'm willing to, you know, I'm willing to rip this weight off your chest. And it just took me getting to the place where I was able to say, Tim, you can take the weight now. I don't, I don't know if I like this. And you see, Israel doesn't take the land on their own strength either. 
They take their land by walking closely with the Lord and by allowing the Lord to deliver them. The entire book of Joshua is moving to this quintessential point. The Israelites show up to the Jordan. God's saying, I'm leading you into a new land, a new way, a way that you've never been before. And there's a river, a big one, overflowing in their way. If you're the people of Israel, like, God, what's going on? God's like, you just wait. And the next day, what seemed impossible is now possible, and they walk upon dry land. They go and fight Jericho, the most interesting battle strategy ever. We're going to march around it one time a day for seven days. Then the seventh day, we're going to march around it seven times, then we're all going to scream. We're going to see how that works. And God brings Jericho down. You see, the Israelites didn't take the land of inheritance because of their own might or Joshua's military strategy, but because they were serving and following one that was strong enough and that was able. And you see, every time that God delivered them, it was for his glory. It was so his glory went before him to nation to nation. So that maybe that they would have a chance to repent and turn. Maybe that they would hear and know and escape the judgment. And it was always for the joy of the Israelites. Always for the joy of the Israelites. Can you imagine being a people of inheritance? Think about it. You walk in and you get to live in homes that you didn't have to build. You get to drink from wells that you didn't have to dig. You get to reap wheat and fruit from a field that you didn't have to plant. This is all what it means to be a people of inheritance. And as we come in, as we come into the inheritance of God, we no longer have the identity of our past, of our past judgment and wrath and condemnation and whatever skeleton that is in your closet that you're still trying to hold on to, that you think that you have to prove to God, give that up and begin to walk as a people redefined and established by grace. So you may walk in the good works that God has for us, and we get to enjoy fruit that we didn't plant. We get to enjoy the fruit that God plants in us. And that fruit's called the Holy Spirit. It's true love. It's true joy. It's true peace. It's true patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's why we have growing in grace sermons so that we can talk about and pray into God, grow this grace of, and this fruit of the inheritance in me. So that I may be more generous, that I may be more patient to my neighbor, that I may be more kind. And God, allow me to live as a person not defined by my past, but defined by my destiny. By you and by what you've done on the cross for us. So I want to read for us one more time this passage in First Peter. Because I think it's most powerful. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. For you are continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. So this morning, what is the burden of your life that needs to be lifted? What is the weight that's on your chest that's crushing your life? That is preventing you from receiving the inheritance Where is it that you need God to move mightily on your behalf? Where is it that you need God to step in and redefine your past and wipe it away and make a new future for you? 
Where are you where you are just being crushed and the weight of life is bearing down on you and you just need to invite God to rip it up for you? For the Israelites, the land of Canaan was their inheritance. And for us, the inheritance is a person. And it's the greatest person that's ever lived, and it's Jesus Christ. And so the question is not, are you ready to take the land? But the question is, are you ready for God? Are you ready for Jesus to take the land for you? Are you ready to hold on wherever that's going to take you? Will you let him conquer and free you? And set aside the inheritance for you. As we move forward in the service, we're going to spend some time worshiping God in this incredible moment of the cross where God's justice and God's mercy and God's grace and where the story changed, where he flipped the script, where we're no longer the Canaanites, but we're now the Israelites. We're going to praise God for that. We're going to take communion and remember the sacrifice of Jesus, the way his blood poured out on our behalf, the way his breath, his body was broken on our behalf. And we're going to spend some time um, also in prayer. So if you need some prayer, there's going to be some people in the back to pray for you. We'd love to come and pray for you. We'd love to see God come and set some people free this morning. Amen. See some people with their past redefined to see the weight that's crushing you disappear and to see God move mightily on your behalf because we're a people of inheritance. We are a people chosen by God, and he is ready for us to walk in that with him and through him. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we just thank you for this day, and we thank you for this good news that we are no longer children of wrath, but children adopted by you, that we can call you Father and that you would take care of us. And so, God, whatever it is that we need to lay down before you, whatever is in our past, God, I just pray that we would bring that before you this morning and that we would leave it here and that you, we would let you lift that weight off of us, that we might walk out a new creation, transformed. God, we thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us, and that you called us friend, and that you came and loved your neighbor, us, when we deserved it the least. And we thank you that you bore our burden, and allow us to bear each other's with each other too. In your name we pray. Amen.